Welcome everybody to an extra special episode of the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and typically this is a show dedicated to telling the story of coastal advocates and people that are doing amazing things to protect the planet. But today we're going to try something a little bit different because the end of the year is really a great time for reflection and preparation for the new year. And because of that, we are going to spend this episode reflecting on the top five climate-related issues of 2018. And before I jump into the list, I just want to note that I curated these issues based on personal opinion of what the top issues were, um, either because of their impact on the natural world, coastal communities, and human and, and environmental health, or given my perspective as an ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes advocate for my day job, prevalent themes and actions coming out of the federal administration that are important for all of us to be aware of. Um, I also apologize. My voice might be a little bit hoarse for this episode because like many of you, my immune system is currently engaged in a really valiant battle with cold and flu season. Um, so bear with me. Um, and this list is certainly not intended to be finite, and I would love to hear your thoughts following the show. So please find me on social media to share your own Climate Top 5 by hashtagging Climate Top 5 or sending it to me directly at Yenna Benna, um, which is Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A -N -N -A on Twitter, or the Coastal News uh, Today family, which is at Coastal News 365 and the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Facebook. All right, so now that we're on the subject of the business side of things anyway, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Yes, we want to thank uh, Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida. This is a dune restoration and uh, consultation company. Uh, they work all along the Gulf Coast, all, all the way from uh, Brownsville and in Texas, all the way around uh, to uh, the South Key West, Key West, in, and up in the Florida. Atlantic side Absolutely. too. It's the Gulf of Mexico, Craig. For you uh, folks, we're down here in the South. You know, you're up there in the North. They're a hub <laughs> vendor, uh, native dune plants. Frederic Barisset, uh, longtime supporter of our program and great company she runs there. If you are in need of these services, go to dunedoctors.com. Dunedoctors.com, great company. And our other sponsor this year, uh, TI Coastal Services from Wilmington, North Carolina, a coastal engineering firm perfect for communities along the shoreline contending with shoreline change, dune restoration, uh, waterway management, a very, very good company. Chris Gibson, a true professional, ticoastal.com. Check them out. Okay, let's kick things off with our top five climate-related issues of 2018 list, um, starting with conservation policy. So in 2018, we saw somewhere right around 80 different environmental protections see action from the Trump administration. And I certainly don't have time to work through all of them here, nor do I think all of you would want to sit there and listen to me talk about all of those on this episode, even though they're all fascinating um, and really important. But 
Let's talk about three of them, starting with one that is near and dear to my heart because it actually was the foundation and really central to the mission of the Healthy Oceans Coalition, which I help run um, with my colleagues, Sarah Winter Whelan of the American Literal Society and Jen Felt of the Conservation Law Foundation um, during my day job. So um, just a little bit of backstory. About eight years ago, President Obama signed the National Ocean Policy via executive order. Um, And this is or was a federal directive that was a result of almost a decade of research, planning, stakeholder engagement, and collaboration to develop a really solid national policy outlining how the federal government should implement its responsibilities to the ocean, our coastal regions, and the Great Lakes. So the National Ocean Policy accomplished many good things. Um, It served as a framework for federal agencies and provided an outline for transparent and collaborative work to achieve nine priority objectives that were outlined in the policy. And it covered everything from coordinating and supporting management across the federal government to resiliency and adaptation to climate change and ocean acidification. Um, And it laid out a practical and efficient um, way to implement and achieve these responsible actions uh, for all the agencies to complete that would support not just healthy and productive ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes ecosystems, but a thriving coastal economy and uh, resilient coastal communities. And this effort resulted in the nation's first ever regional ocean plans for the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic regions in 2016, um, which outline how regions will sustainably use their busy waters into the future. Um, But the Trump administration took the opportunity this past July to repeal the national ocean policy and replace it with his own version. And this new, what we're calling Trump policy, the new Trump policy, um, contains several new points, most notably trading the national ocean policy's stewardship ethic to protect, maintain, and restore our oceans, coasts, and Great Lakes for one that is more focused on data, science, and coordination, which on its face, those are great things. Those are fantastic things. Um, But they were things that were already included in the national ocean policy. And um, what it is missing, though, is a statement of intent to foster stewardship and conservation, as well as welcome tribal governments to participate in the decision-making process. So... A way that we think about it, and when I say we, I mean um, me and some of my colleagues, is that if the national ocean policy was a scale that was equally balancing conservation and sustainable use, the new Trump policy is a scale with a thumb pressing down really hard on the use side of things. Um, So this repeal and replace is also a glaring example of the risk that you take when issuing an executive order um, because they can be very fragile if a new administration coming in is not supportive of that action. So another major policy to come under fire um, includes um, the Endangered Species Act, which 
The Endangered Species Act is a law that was created 45 years ago by President Nixon, just to give you a little bit of history on it, to provide a framework to conserve and protect endangered and threatened species and their habitats by providing states with financial assistance and incentives to develop and maintain conservation programs. Now, this is pretty amazing because the Endangered Species Act has been more than 99% successful at preventing extinction. So, and so much of that, um, or so much so, excuse me, that um, scientists estimate that at least 227 species would have likely gone extinct since it was signed into law in 1973. So another thing is that this doesn't just help protect species from extinction. It's helping species recover and protecting habitat. So currently it protects more than 1,600 plant and animal species in the United States and our U.S. territories, um, many of which are still successfully recovering. So it's really nice to see success stories. Um, but the Trump administration released a proposal in July that would strip the Endangered Species Act of key provisions to keep plant and animal life and habitats from going extinct. Um, so the proposal, which was announced jointly by the Department of the Interior and the Department of Commerce, would end the practice of extending similar protections to species regardless of their status, either being endangered or threatened. Um, and essentially, without getting too deep into the weeds, this, um, these proposals <clears throat> excuse me, make it more difficult to protect species and to add new species to the list, um, makes it easier to remove species that are currently on the list, to reduce protections for imperiled species, and makes it more difficult to protect critical habitat, um, and to base these listings on uh, more unreliable economic analyses rather than scientific data. Um, so moving on to round out the conservation policy section, we need to talk about the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Um, and because I gave a little bit of history on the National Ocean Policy and the Endangered Species Act, I will do the same for Magnuson-Stevens. Um, so the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act is the primary law that we have in the United States governing governing marine fisheries management um, in our federal waters. So because the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act is a mouthful, I'm going to call it the MSA from now on. Um, so the MSA fosters long-term biological and economic sustainability of our nation's marine fisheries. And the key objectives of this act are to prevent overfishing, rebuild overfished stocks, increase long-term economic and social benefits, and ensure a safe and sustainable supply of seafood. So this law was named for Senator Warren G. Magnuson of Washington State and Ted Stevens, who was also a senator from Alaska. One was a Democrat, one was a Republican. They were working together, which is beautiful, um, to champion this law um, in 1976. And it has been absolutely necessary and critical to successfully rebuilding fish stocks in the United States. 
Um, just like the Endangered Species Act, this law has been a success, and it's been responsible for rebuilding 43 fish stocks since 2000, which is so impressive. Um, in 2018, a couple of legisl legislative actions in the House and Senate were proposed to get rid of some of the key aspects of uh, what makes the MSA so successful. Things such as establishing timelines for rebuilding depleted populations, use it, using science to set catch limits, balancing regional and national interests, putting short-term... Um, so in my opinion, this is just putting short-term economic gain over long-term the long-term health of U.S. fisheries. Um, and we'll continue to keep you updated on the fisheries issues um, as the new Congress settles in. I plan to have some people on my show that are much more knowledgeable about the MSA than I am, um, and we can take a deeper dive into um, what we're seeing with the reauthorization and what it all means and how people can get in involved. Um, but for now... We will move on to number four, federal leadership. So this past year, we saw the rise and fall of the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, and the Department of the Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke. Both of their reigns were uh, riddled with scandal and misconduct, all in the name of abusing taxpayer dollars for private benefit and interests. And I'm not going to get into all of their scandals because there are far too many of them to cover in a reasonable amount of time for a podcast. But I encourage you all to look them up if you haven't been following along already. Um, so we can all use them as an example of what we should aim to never repeat again in terms of... Um, responsible and successful and sustainable leadership. Um, and an interesting thing is that I've, I've often noted to my parents and uh, other family members and some friends of mine that when else have the heads of the EPA and the Department of the Interior been household names, um, which is unfortunate, but it's because of poor ethical reasons. Um, because I really think that Gina McCarthy, who is the EPA administrator under the Obama administration, as well as Sally Jewell, who is the, secret the secretary of the Department of the Interior under that same administration, um, were totally incredible leaders and they're great role models, but I'm willing to bet that far fewer people know of them or know of their accomplishments. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting thing to me to see that these people have become household names. Um, because of more negative leadership uh, actions that they have taken. Um, and it appears that David Bernhardt will replace Ryan Zinke as the Secretary of the Interior, and Andrew Wheeler currently he heads up the EPA. Um, so I'll leave this category, or this part of it, the category anyway, on just saying this, that yes, it is nice to see Pruitt and Zinke go, but keep an eye on the two that are coming in, Bernhardt and Wheeler, because they both have vested interests in and long histories in seeing the oil and gas industry succeed. And I think that they have potential to be even more successful in doing just that at the expense of our public lands and human health. 
um, by flying a bit more under the radar than their predecessors did. Um, So now while we're talking about federal leadership, I feel like a trademark of this administration has been releasing important reports on Fridays or during holidays. And this is not something that just the Trump administration has done. Um, A lot of other administrations have used this tactic as well, um, but they seem like this has become a trademark of their their administration if they're trying to release something that that maybe they don't agree with or they hope doesn't get picked up by the media. Um, so, for example, the fourth national um, the fourth national climate assessment. So this was released on Friday, November twenty third, which is the day after Thanksgiving. Um, which will, that date in my mind will live on in infamy as Climate Friday um, because the internet, social media, and the media itself went wild. Um, And it actually kind of backfired on the administration if they were actually trying to bury this piece of news um, because people were not having it. This is a very important report and... um, I actually think it got a decent amount of coverage because people were pretty outraged that um, they tried to release this under the radar. But anyway, um, this was a massive new report, and it contradicts the Trump administration's discourse and actions relating to climate change and science. And when I say massive, I mean that it's 1,656 pages long. Um, This report asserts a really dire warning that climate change is an intensifying danger in the United States. It's transforming every region of the country, imposing increased costs to the economy, and harming the health of nearly every citizen, and additionally, threatening our national security. This report was peer-reviewed. Um, And it's the product of a collaboration between more than 300 authors. And it's also endorsed by NOAA and NASA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and um, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. My God, if I got that wrong, I'm going to be really embarrassed. Um, But (laughs) the Department of Defense and, and 10 other federal scientific agencies. So this is a solid report that's backed by a lot of um, very bright minds, hardworking people, and a lot of years of research. So now you may be wondering, why would the federal government even release a climate report that contradicts the rhetoric coming out of its own leadership? And that's a great question. Um, The answer to that is because it's mandated by law through the U.S. Global Change Research Program. And that program was established in 1989 by presidential initiative during President George H.W. Bush's term in office. May he rest in peace. Um, And Congress then further mandated action through um, the Global Change Research Act of 1990. So all of that's to say that this report was required um, by law for them to produce. And I highly recommend you check out the report if you have the time. I know it's long, and um, the authors also realize that it's long, so they've released a handy-dandy summary of findings that's um, 
quite user-friendly and easy to read. Um, so all I'm going to say about this during this show is that uh, some people may try, but there is really no denying the fact that the world has warmed over the past 150 years and continues to top the charts with the warmest years on record. Um, we are experiencing warming at, an, at unprecedented levels due to human reliance on fossil fuels and a warming atmosphere that is triggering many other changes to the Earth's climate. So changes in surface, atmospheric, and ocean temperatures, melting glaciers, snow cover and ice, rising sea levels, stronger and more frequent storms, and increasing atmospheric water vapor. These are all things that have been documented by hundreds of studies conducted by thousands of scientists around the world. And seeing large-scale scientific collaboration to advance our understanding of climate and how it will impact us is really inspiring. It's necessary, and it's quite refreshing. Um, in the findings of the assessment, yes, they are serious, but with this news comes the opportunity for us to right the ship. So when I say that, I mean that we must increase our investment in renewable energy and development, plan for more responsible land and water use, reduce our reliance and mismanagement of plastics and other harmful waste, foster resilient coastlines, and update aging infrastructure. So the bottom line is that climate change doesn't care if you believe in it or not. Um, the realities outlined in this report are just around the corner if we don't take immediate action. So there's opportunities in that. But on <laughs> that uplifting note, it's kind of funny um, having a list of climate issues because I feel like I'm trying not to be a downer, but these are all really important. I promise I'll end on an uplifting note. Um, so with that thought, it brings us to number three on our list, which is protected lands. So uh, let's talk about monuments and sanctuaries for a minute. And when I say that, I mean both marine and land-based. The American people collectively own 640 million acres of land, um, and this land serves a wide range of purposes from hunting and fishing, recreation, and wildlife and habitat protection. These areas generate billions of dollars in revenue that directly benefit our nation's economy and the livelihoods of those that live here. Um, so in spring of 2018, the president issued a couple of executive orders that threaten 11 marine reserves one directing a review of national monuments on land and at sea, and another ordering a second review of marine monuments and sanctuaries. And these orders are really a red flag to the public, as President Trump has basically effectively announced that it's his intention to reduce protections and potentially allow oil drilling, mineral extraction, and commercial fishing in at least some of these pristine areas which are so foundational and are the cornerstone of the United States. We are like the gold standard for protected land. So this is really upsetting to see. 
And within these actions, President Trump directed the Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, to conduct a review of national monuments designated or expanded under the Antiquities Act of 1906. And the order specifically targeted, targeted and I'm going to quote here, um, all presidential designations or expansions of designations under the Antiquities Act made since January 1st of 1996, where the designation covers more than 100,000 acres, where the designation after expansion covers more than 100,000 acres, or where the secretary determines that the designation or expansion was made without adequate public outreach and coordination with relevant stakeholders. So what does all of this mean? So with checks and balances built into our nation's system, it is my belief and many others that only Congress, not the president, has the authority to take the actions that Secretary Zinke proposed in his recommendations. And if the White House attempts to implement these recommendations, like what we're seeing with Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, we expect Congress to take the appropriate steps to support the more than 3 million comments from the American people, 98% of which supported maintaining monuments as they are by challenging the Trump administration's actions in court in overturning them. So in summary, there is a massive effort out there to keep these lands and waters our lands and waters, and a great group to follow to stay in the know on all of this is the the Monuments for All campaign. Um, And you can find out more about them. They're on social media, but you can also go to their website at monumentsforall.org or just Google them. They have a lovely website, and they have action alerts and are really great about keeping us in the know um, when there's an opportunity to provide input or um, important information for us to know um, about these monuments, sanctuaries, and protected lands and waters. So moving on to number two, energy. So let's start with oil and gas. So uh, it has long been proven that where we drill, we spill, and spills are harmful for human and environmental health. And two really notable spills in 2018, there certainly were not just two, but these are two really big ones. Um, First, just north of where I sit right now in Maine, um, more than 66,000 gallons of crude oil spilled into the Atlantic Ocean from the Husky Energy's Sea Rose platform making it the largest spill in Newfoundland's history. Um, And it's a pretty interesting example of how, what kind of consequences we face with spills in the North Atlantic because the water temperatures and storms and dynamics of those ecosystems make it very difficult to cap a spill. Um, And we learned that the hard way this year. Um, And also the Taylor energy spill that has been leaking between 10,000 and 30,000 gallons of oil every day. So I'll take a minute there and repeat that every day into the Gulf of Mexico for the past 14 years. Um, And this one's kind of depressing because there's no fix in sight. Um, And the U.S. Coast Guard recently just took over um, 
the containment and cleanup efforts of the offshore oil rig. So we're hopeful that they will get that stopped, um, even though we are in a shutdown right now. Um, but yes, yeah, so 14 years this bill has been taking place. Um, we also saw a draft proposed program calling for the largest sell-off of offshore oil and gas leases in U.S. history and, if put into action, would effectively open up more than 90% of the U.S. Of US offshore waters to oil and gas exploration. And the proposal seeks to open up the entire Atlantic seaboard and West Coast waters for lease, most of the Gulf of Mexico and the Arctic, um, and this proposed program calls for 47 leases over the f- program's five-year span. So this announcement was followed by a 60-day public comment period where there was a unified and massive outcry against the plan by coastal communities, businesses, fishing communities, and conservation and recreation groups. We now expect to see uh, the next draft. We were told the end of this year, but now it's looking more like the beginning of 2019, Um, And this will be followed by another public comment period. Uh, Everybody is really interested to see if our comments were taken into consideration um, and have another opportunity to provide input on this plan. Oceana and Surfrider Foundation are working really hard to keep everybody informed on these issues. Um, So I would recommend giving them a follow to stay in the loop about oil and gas. And on the flip side of oil and gas, it seems like 2018 was also a year of renewables with Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York in what seems like a race to develop the most offshore wind power. Um, And in fact, Massachusetts just held a record-breaking auction uh, recently for lease sales where Um, what's being called as a bidding bonanza, which it truly was. It was really incredible to watch Um, for three lease areas off Massachusetts brought in $405 million in winning bids. And uh, wind energy is interesting to me because yes, I'm supportive of moving toward renewables, but I caution that, um, this development is moving quite fast, um, so I'm just hoping that it's it's being done in a thoughtful manner um, that includes robust stakeholder engagement and reviews of the environmental impacts, because just like developing anything else offshore, um, we want to make sure that we're being considerate about uh, all of ocean uses and the marine life that lives in those areas where these uh, wind development sites and leases are being proposed. So with all of that said, I wish I had a little drum roll machine um, coming in at number one on the top five climate-related issues of 2018 list is, wait for it, building suspense. It is climate change itself. Um, So who would have thought, I bet you guys didn't see that coming, really threw a giant curveball at you. Um, So let's start with fires. In 2018 so far, a devastating 1,539,185 acres of land have been burned 
in California as a result of wildfires. And this figure is still growing. And prior to that, 2017 was the largest fire season that the state had to date with 1,248,606 acres burning. And 2018 heartbreakingly found a way to top that. Um, And I'll just note that, I mean, fires have long been a way of life in California, but these massive ones um, like the Camp Fire and the Wolseley Fire, I may have mispronounced that. My apologies. There's a lot of cold medicine happening. Um, But these massive ones are becoming more prevalent and costing billions of dollars to fight and prevent each year. So dry conditions and decreased precipitation is a climate trend that is affecting the American Southwest, which also happen to be prime conditions for wildfires. And if anything, these fires have made it evident that city planning and climate preparedness need to be at the top of lawmakers' agendas. Um, So moving on from fires, we also had some really destructive and notable hurricanes in 2018. So the 2018 hurricane season officially drew to an end on November 30th and really will be remembered as one of the most um, remembered most for some major destruction caused by Hurricanes Florence and Hurricane Michael, um, which completely destroyed areas of the Carolinas and the Florida Panhandle. Um, And these areas are still recovering and will be for a long time. So in total, the season produced 15 named storms, including eight hurricanes, of which two were major, um, which a major hurricane is defined as a category three, four, or five. And just to quickly provide some context, um, the average hurricane season has 12 named storms, six hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. And to wrap up the climate segment of our top five list, um, we have algae. So this year, the coastal waters of Florida, are uh, they experienced one of the worst red tides in recent history. Um, and this kind of tide is caused by a bloom of algae that feeds on nutrient-rich runoff, so water that comes from land and runs off into rivers, streams, and makes its way out to our ocean and coast. Um, this usually comes from farms or fertilized lawns. And these blooms killed hundreds of marine animals, including more than 300 sea turtles, 100 manatees, innumerable, innumerable fish, and many dolphins. And this uh, isn't just a marine life issue. It also impacts human health, too. So many people experienced illness. They got sick. They had breathing problems and experienced beach closure. closure. So it affected um, coastal the coastal economy as well. All right. So uh, as we wrap up this episode, many of you may be listening and thinking, so what can we do about all of these things? Um, well, <clears throat> continue listening to my show as the whole point of my show is to bring on amazing people that are doing work that we can all get involved in, but also speak to your members of Congress about these issues. Phone calls, emails, even tweets uh, 
Um, And if you're feeling up to it, in-person meetings are all fantastic ways to let your members of Congress know that these issues should be on their radar and that their constituents value a healthy environment. Also, understanding that running through a list of climate news may or may not be the most uplifting thing, depending on who you are and what you enjoy hearing about, but it's important. And there's a lot of cause for optimism out there from Congress getting a bit of a refresh with more women and young people and diversity heading to the Hill in 2019. Um, The momentum of this new Green Deal, which proposes to develop a detailed national industrial economic mobilization plan for a transition of the United States economy to become more carbon neutral and reduce and capture greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and oceans to promote economic and environmental justice and equality. Um, And we've also seen real momentum relating to reducing plastic pollution. So I know that the list that I just ran through might not have been the most uplifting thing, um, especially hearing me talk about all of this with a cold. Um, So thank you for bearing with me (laughs) as I sound really hoarse and nasally. Um, I promise I don't always sound like this if you're new to the show. Um, But then... Um, My heart goes out to all of you and those of you that were affected by any of these events that I noted on this list. Um, The human spirit and community is really an incredible thing. So if any of you are finding yourselves feeling down or lonely or going through hard times, especially during the holiday season, whether it's climate related or not, know that you are loved, you are strong and we are more resilient than we can even imagine. We have a lot to be thankful for and optimistic for, and my New Year's wish for all of you is to be kind to yourself, be kind to the planet, and be kind to each other in 2019. And this doesn't have to be through grand gestures, like starting a massive um, pay-it-forward line at your local Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks takeout. Um, It can be through many different forms, big or small. Um, And I would also like to thank you all for listening today for your continued support of the show um, and for your continued support of the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. So now that we've reflected on 2018 and, oh man, what a year it was, we now have our sights set on the upcoming year and on continuing to provide high-quality shows that we can all enjoy and learn from. We would love to hear from you about topics you'd like to hear us cover, if you have people that would be great to interview for our shows, and feedback on our shows. Um, so please find us at social media on social media at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today on Facebook. Um, at Coastal News 365 on Twitter. Um, you can find me at Yenabena, Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. I know it's a silly name and I made it before I got a podcast, um, but if you want to have personal conversations with me about these episodes, that's where you can find me on Twitter. That's where you can find us on social media. Um, and search the American Shoreline Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts to get this show and many others that are also fantastic from subject matter experts 
all within the ASPN family, which is the acronym that we are using for the American Shoreline Podcast Network, not to be confused with ESPN. Um, And always reviews and subscribes are greatly appreciated. So thank you all and happy new year.